Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks so much for your blessings upon our lives, for letting us gather, for strengthening us to come together in your name, for uniting us in Jesus Christ as our head. And I pray as we read your word today, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit, give us an understanding of your truth, put in us a hunger to know you and to know your word and to walk in your light. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. You have been faithful to us. Lord, put in our hearts great joy to sing, to speak, to rejoice in all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1. This is, it was kind of a cool confirmation this morning, uh, focusing on the prophets to the northern kingdom. That I, I can't remember the last time this happened, but as I was reading my personal devotions in the morning, I happened to fall exactly on Hosea 1. So here we are. Uh, that was kind of cool. The grace of God, we see it throughout all scripture. It's not like the revelation of the gospel that wasn't fulfilled until the life of Christ, where there was uh, a mystery that was then revealed in the person of Christ. The Bible is steeped with God's grace. We see it from beginning to end and now and forever. God's grace is prevalent. It's constant. And that grace speaks of his righteousness and his holiness, his justice and his love, and that we're completely undeserving of it. We don't deserve to be given grace, but God gives it. In Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he talks about how we grow up in a culture of ungrace, that we have to earn forgiveness and we have to earn our way. And it's about our rights, very much into our rights. But he, he says God's grace is really foreign to us, that you would actually favor somebody who does not deserve it. The most undeserving is the one that you give favor to. And as long as we're in these bodies, we have to grow in grace, in receiving the grace of God, that we can't earn God's favor, but also giving it freely to others. And it seems to me the more I learn about God's grace, the more I realize how ungracious I am and how undeserving I am. That, that seems to go together. Grace in its pure divine form, it's almost scandalous, almost sacrilegious to those who think, well, that person doesn't deserve anything. Well, it's like, well, yeah, it's grace. That's the point. God is so good to those who don't deserve his goodness. So we're going to start in Hosea. Hosea was a prophet of God. A little background on this. Uh, to the divided kingdom, which had been divided since the days of Rehoboam. So Solomon was king. His son Rehoboam assumed the throne. But at that time, Jeroboam divided the kingdom to the north and south. God had said, this is what's going to happen. Jeroboam, I'm going to give to him ten tribes. But in keeping my word to David and to Solomon, I'm going to keep uh, Judah and Benjamin in Jerusalem. So these, the, the state was divided. Uh, and concern that people would, from the north, because the law required them to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice, Jeroboam's like, well, if they keep going back every year by year, they're going to be loyal to Rehoboam. So I'm going to set up high places in Dan and Bethel with these golden calves and say, hey, Israel, it's too hard for you to go up to Jerusalem to worship. Worship God in these high places. And he began to appoint people as priests and ministers who were of the lowest of the people. And idolatry was prevalent in the northern kingdom from before 
they came into the land and after. That was just constant uh, with the tribe of Dan. And Jeroboam's concern was realized when those who were devout and who feared God, the priests, the Levites, and the common people, they left their inheritance and they went to Jerusalem and settled in the lands of Judah. And the idolatry continued to flourish in the north. And though they had departed from the Lord, it was actually at this time when Hosea was speaking, a time of great prosperity, which was from 760 to 720 B.C. And Pastor David Guzik, he wrote in the Enduring Word Commentary that Hosea began his ministry at a time when things were so politically successful and economically prosperous that people just didn't look to the Lord the way they should. The seeds of idolatry, spiritual favor, and corruption sown in the days of Jeroboam II produced a tragic harvest in the following years. There's a delay, isn't there, between sowing and reaping? So they had a lot of riches and wealth and benefits, and perhaps they thought God's favor rested upon them. But in departing from the Lord, they were sowing seed that would bear cursed fruit under the law. What seemed like a golden age of prosperity, it was really just a cheap veneer that when the sun hits it, it starts peeling and cracking, and it shows how worthless it is. That's the, the state that would happen. So the book of Hosea it follows this pattern that we see throughout the Old and the New Testaments, that there was sin, judgment, but salvation. There was going to be restoration because of God's grace, God's grace to undeserving people. We see it with Noah and the great flood uh, throughout the book of the Judges, where people went away from God, but cried out to him in their distress, and he raised up a deliverer for them. We see it when Israel was united after they come out of Babylon. Uh, uniting us with Christ, Jew and Gentile. God causes his people to reap what they sow, but he also causes them to reap what they have not sown. That God gives grace where it's undeserved. So Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea the son of Beri in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash, king of Israel. God spoke to Hosea over the course of many years. His name means salvation or deliverer. His contemporaries included Isaiah, Amos, and Micah. His focus of ministry was the northern kingdom. According to God's word, the prophets, uh, through the prophets, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, was put away for their sin. They would be uh, defeated by the Assyrians. They would be destroyed by Babylon. And there was hope in God. But because they would not repent, there was no hope for them until they recognized their idolatry and said, we need to return to the Lord and put away the idols that are among us. And uh, it's a good example for us to speak forth the word of God and to live in light of the scripture, even when people aren't taking notice. And that's something Hosea did. Remember, Jeremiah was told that people are going to hate you for what you're saying. You're going to speak the truth. They're not going to listen to you but he kept speaking the truth. And sometimes we feel like, well, they're not gonna listen, so why should I say the truth? Well, if God prompts you to speak, it may be that you're obedient to him, and that's it, and that's good. Um, his, our call is to regard and obey God, not dependent on other people, whether they will listen or not. Verse two and three, when the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, 
Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. At the beginning of Hosea's prophetic ministry, God gave him a directive many people found head-scratching. God wanted Hosea's life to provide a living illustration of the reality of the relationship between him and his people. And he would do that by Hosea telling him to marry a prostitute. It plainly says to seek a wife of harlotry, meaning she was already a harlot. It was not someone who was faithful and became a harlot, but someone who was practicing prostitution. Some have spiritualized Gomer's whoredom, as it says in the King James, thinking it impossible that God would make such an unreasonable demand on someone. But I like what Boyce had to say about this. He says, if Hosea's story cannot be real because God could not ask a man to marry an unfaithful woman, then neither is the story of salvation real, because that is precisely what Christ has done for us. Would you listen to a prophet who married a prostitute? Or would you just go, nah, I'm not going to listen to this guy. He obviously is not making wise choices about his, his marriage partner. It was scandalous for Hosea to marry a prostitute. I can't imagine his friends or his family thought it was a good match. And it was not his first choice either, I'm sure. But the reality is it was less scandalous than the great evil God's people did in departing from him in their spiritual harlotry. Now, if God told Hosea to marry a harlot, it would have been a sin for him not to. If someone told me today, I'm planning on marrying a prostitute, I would be the first to say, I would caution you strongly against that. I would advise you not uh, to do that because promiscuity, unfaithfulness, without repentance, it shows a departure from walking with Jesus. Praise the Lord for those who have been sexually uh, impure to a current or even a a future spouse. There's hope and forgiveness when we repent. Hosea's call by God as a true prophet to marry an unfaithful woman was legitimate. God's people had departed from God in addition by worshiping other gods. It wasn't like they stopped worshiping God but they started worshiping other gods as well. And Hosea's life was this living parable that illustrated the reality, and that message is relevant to today. Gomer did not reserve her sexual activity to the marriage bed, and that was a picture of Israel. They had not reserved their affections for, for God alone, but they had given themselves over to idols under every green tree, all the high places. It's not written if Hosea went to her father or a brothel, but he arranged this marriage, and then she gave, she conceived and bore Hosea a son. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu, and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. God told him to name his son Jezreel. And he was obedient to the Lord. Now Jezreel, that's a valley in the land of Issachar. It's a location of many battles. 
It's also the location where Ahab killed righteous Naboth. Remember, Naboth had a vineyard, and uh, Ahab had land close to it. And he's like, oh, that'd be great to have that as my spice garden. So he said, Naboth, uh, sell me your vineyard. And he says, God forbid that I would sell my inheritance to you. So he got angry about it. His wife Jezebel, seeing Ahab was all depressed, said, why are you sad? Like, let's, we, we can find a way to get you this vineyard. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, we'll just you know, call a big feast and we'll accuse him and kill him and then you take it. And Ahab's like, that sounds great. <laughs> Terrific, I'll get the vineyard. Um, so Elijah prophesied the place where the dogs licked the blood of Naboth is where Ahab would die, and his wife, the one who organized the execution in 1 Kings 21, would be eaten by dogs by the wall of Jezreel. And I'm like, yikes, that's pretty rough, that's pretty horrid. Uh, but God would bring vengeance upon Ahab and his house because of their sin, because of the idolatry, because they promoted Baal worship, how they killed the prophets of God, and how he led the people into great sin. God raised up Jehu, as king to cut off the house of Ahab. And it says in 2 Kings 10, 11, so Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his close acquaintances and his priests until he left none remaining. So Jehu then reigned. So a new line, Ahab's line is stopped. Jehu's line begins. And Jehoahaz, Joash, Jeroboam II, and Zechariah followed. But that would be the end of Jehu's line. Because Hosea talks about um, naming that son Jezreel because God remembered the bloodshed. God saw that the family of Ahab had been killed, and he would, he would, um, that needed a reckoning. Because we see that Jehu did not follow the Lord either, as he should have. In 2 Kings 10, 29 through 31, it says, Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. That is from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. So there had been no atonement for that blood that was shed, and it would be now visited upon Jehu's family four generations on. And this teaches me that obedience in one area of my life doesn't cover over disobedience in another area. Jehu was king in Israel, but he was still called to go to Jerusalem, but he refused to do that. He sacrificed instead at these high places that Jeroboam had set up. So he was setting this bad example, and uh, there was a reckoning required. That spiritual harlotry, it would lead to decline, to destruction. Often these troubles, whether in marriage or interpersonal relationships, they don't just start overnight. It's, it's a process of sowing into that over time. And... Um, I can just look at myself and say, I, I want to be sure that I am being obedient to the Lord and what he's calling me to do, not feeling like because things are great that I am really walking with the Lord. Um, we, need to, like, we need to have a hunger and a thirst for the Lord, to be seeking him, to be walking with him, to desire fellowship with him. Just going through the motions, that's a dangerous place for us. 
because we are easily caught off our guard and we, our, our affections begin to move away from the Lord. Verse 6, And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lohrahuma, excuse me, Ruhama, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Gomer conceived and bore a daughter. God told Hosea to name her Lo-Ruhama, which meant not loved. The illustration in Hosea's life went beyond just who he married, but what he named his children. And I think there's something in me and in us that resents that. It says, you know, it's one thing to, you know, you're being a bit controlling, a bit intrusive, God, to tell me who I'm going to marry and what I'm going to name my children. Do you find there's some of that in you too? Where there's like, hold on, hold on, is this okay? There's something that pushes back against God, granting God full authority to make decisions in our lives and for us to be obedient to him. It should be frightful how critical we can be towards God and the things that he does and the things he says. Aren't our lives and those of our children to be used for him and by him since he's created us, since he has made us and chosen us? And it's such a a huge bonus that he's good and he's righteous and he's trustworthy and he's faithful. He is the faithful God who, who is pure and holy. This wasn't a lovely or a popular name, but every time it was spoken, it drew attention to the fact that God's people had refused his love. We know that the Bible says God has loved all people. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That receiving that love is conditional. It's conditional upon my faith. So God has extended his love to me, but I am, I am not walking in that love if I do not believe him and trust in him. God's love was constant towards his people, but the reality was they were estranged from his mercy and estranged from his love because they forsook him. They refused it. So God said, I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. For a season, God would cut off his compassion and mercy towards Israel because of the abominations in their midst. And God used this picture of marriage broken by adultery in Isaiah 50 verse 1 to illustrate to Judah what had happened on a spiritual level with Israel. And this is what he says. Thus says the Lord, where is the certificate of your mother's divorce whom I put away? Of which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? For your iniquities you have sold yourselves and for your transgressions your mother has been put away. So Israel, the northern kingdom, is like the mother, Judah, the daughter, and there was that proverb, like mother, like daughter. And that, that was the case. They were both idolatrous. They both had forsaken the Lord. And he says, you know, I did not, it was customary in those days, if you were on hard times, that members of your family could be put into indentured servitude, like slavery for six years, and then the seventh year go free to pay off debts. So he's like, guys, I didn't rack up a debt. I wasn't poor, 
but I basically fill, I signed the certificate of divorce your mother filled out when she left me. So Israel had left the Lord, and he said, I just signed it. She departed, and so I'm not going to show mercy to her at this time. What's really neat is when there was this division between the northern and southern kingdom, and idolatry had been established in the northern kingdom, that the righteous people there, they left their inheritance, and they went to, they went to Jerusalem and settled in Judah. They were partakers. So people of Israel, they were partakers of the grace and mercy of God that he extended towards Judah because they departed from that iniquity and they chose him. So God didn't withhold his mercy from them if they wanted it. If they wanted it, it was there. But it would mean leaving your home. It meant leaving your inheritance. It would cost them. And whenever we want to enter into the grace and the mercy of God, often it comes at a cost. And... When we trust in him, he will preserve us. No one's unfair in not showing mercy because mercy, by definition, isn't fair. Fair is getting what you deserve. Mercy says, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. Grace is giving something that's undeserved. So that's the difference between mercy and grace. Romans 9.15, it says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. God's been merciful and gracious to us all, hasn't he? He's created us. He's provided for us. He's helped us in every way. If God wasn't gracious, the human race would have long ago ceased to exist. But he has kept us, and he has revealed himself to us, and he causes his light to shine. He causes the rain to fall. He leads us in righteousness and goodness, and he shows himself to us personally. God has every right and all authority to do anything he pleases and praise him. He's gracious and merciful. Satan's lie is that God is brutal. He's arbitrary. He's unfair. He's cruel in his dealings with men because we don't understand them. But the exact opposite is what's true, that he's merciful Loving, gracious, compassionate. We're the ungrateful, unthankful, bent ones. We're the foolish children who are full of greed, selfishness, and pride. Because of their sin and refusal to repent, Israel abused that mercy that God had given them. And it was coming to an end. So he was warning them through naming of this child. Verse 8. Now, when she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. This word means not my people, this name. Now, if you've read carefully, you'll see that the first time it says she bore him a son, the next two times she conceives, it says it in a different way. It just says she conceived and bore a son. She didn't bear him a son. Because she was unfaithful during marriage and before marriage, it's quite likely this was literally true in this case. So this child that was born was not his son. So he says, call him not my son, not my people. 
Guzik, again, in the Enduring Word Commentary, writes, Since Gomer did not give up her prostitution, there may be an, a cruel irony in the name Lo-Ami. Perhaps this son really was not the son of Hosea, but of another man. Perhaps the appearance of the child made this evident. I can imagine people discussing, like, that's an odd name, and he doesn't look anything like his dad. Not my son? <laughs> like, what, what, what picture is he trying to paint here? Through this, God was making a statement. He's saying, because of your practices and your behavior, you in no way resemble me. You don't look like me. You don't speak like me. You're not righteous like I am. The purity and the humility and the grace, where is that? While you're oppressing each other. Please turn to John chapter 8, verse 39. See, it wasn't hair color or eye color or the the shape of your face that God was concerned about, but the heart, the thoughts, the motives, the conduct. And John 8 has this conversation with the Pharisees where the Pharisees prided themselves on being sons of Abraham. And he's saying, guys, you don't look like sons of Abraham at all. You don't resemble him. You're of your father, the devil. That got their attention. John 8, starting in verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The Pharisees were proud. They descended from Abraham. That was their bloodline. But they were of the devil because they refused Christ. They rejected him. They would not listen to what he said, and they sought to kill him. So he's saying, guys, you don't resemble God at all. If God was your father, or if Abraham was your father, you would have the faith that Abraham had. And Jesus knew that very well because he had conversed with Abraham. He held forth God's word. They refused to listen. The insights of Christ here, it really hits home to the hearts of those who identify as Christians, as followers of Jesus. It's not for us to stand and, and, I guess, judge or determine if others are really Christians or not, if they're truly following the Lord. It's really for us first to examine ourselves, our own hearts. Before God, we're called to walk in the light of our own conscience, of what he has told us in his word. If we're children of Abraham... If we're children of faith in God, then we should do the works of Abraham. We should be trusting him and obeying him. If he says, leave your home and go to the land that I'm showing you, if he were to say that to you, would you go? It's a hard thing. Faith is, it's not easy because it pushes back against the flesh. In Christ, we're a new creation. Obeying his command to love one another, to be filled with the Spirit. 
We're not Christians because we go to church or we read the Bible or we study the scriptures because we share the gospel or we serve one another because we've been baptized or we pray or worship. Yet all these mark the life of a believer. But that's not what defines us. That's not what makes us a Christian. If we identify with Christ in word, if I say, yes, I am a follower of Jesus, but my heart and my mind are filled with all manner of uncleanness and lusts, if I'm not loving towards one another, if it's like, do I then resemble Christ in any way? If I'm unforgiving, if I'm bitter without repentance, if, if I'm following Jesus, well, then I ought to have evident in my life those qualities and characteristics of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's what's to mark my life, not the lusts of the flesh. So if we have these sinful contra contradictions, notice them and confess them. It's, it's good for us to be convicted of our sin so that we can turn from it and repent and do the things that please God. We can't be blind to those. I pray that God would sweep aside the refuge of lies so that we can understand that we need Christ for cleansing and salvation. We need him. Though the fear of God was no longer in his people, God's grace was abundant. They were going to reap what they sowed, but they would also reap what they had not sown. They would receive this grace and mercy. These trials that were coming, it wasn't for their destruction. It was for their restoration. Because though they claimed to know God and to follow God, they were far from God because they had committed adultery with all those other idols. Their hearts' affections were towards other things rather than God. And this withdrawal of God's mercy, it would thresh the people, it would purify them, and they would come out of captivity in Babylon without the idolatry that had marked them from the beginning of their history. Have you ever thought about that? Before the kings even came, there was idolatry in Dan. But after they came out, you don't see images in the holy place. You don't see the widespread idolatry in the high places that occurred before the captivity. Because the people that God brought out of captivity, they were loyal to God. So God was restoring them in a very strange way, an unexpected way. God had given them a promise that David, the Messiah, is going to come through your line, Jesus Christ. He made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and Israel. And God would keep his word. He would show mercy to Judah, not only for their sakes, but for our sakes, so that even Gentiles, people outside of the covenant of the law, could repent and be born again through faith in Jesus. There's no one good, no, not one. Not one person is worthy of forgiveness, but Jesus gives salvation freely to everybody. A chance for a new start, a new life. And the fear of the Lord, how good is it to be in us? The recognition of his power, his love, his worthiness to be worshiped and trusted and believed, and, and contrasting that with our absolute poverty of soul and our need for cleansing and salvation. By all rights, God should say of us, not loved because of what we've done, and not my child because we've been estranged from him. But see, God in his mercy and grace, he has looked upon us favorably. He has given us a chance for salvation, 
And even when we fail, he pursues us. He loves us, not because we deserve it, but because he is good. And see, that doesn't change. Hosea 1, verse 10. This is the switch now. It's all been kind of uh, sad up till this point, but see how it changes. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head. And they shall come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Verse 1, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. God said he would no longer show mercy to the northern kingdom, but God's grace would bring this complete reversal where there's that conjunction there. It says, yet, though I'm not going to show mercy to Israel at this time, yet I will number Israel more than the sands of the sea in multitude. The place that was a killing field, it would be a gathering place to him. God would keep his promise to Abraham by redeeming and restoring his people. And restoring really isn't a great word because it's not just restoring Israel to its former glory under Solomon, but going far beyond it with Jesus Christ being that head, the one that he's ordained to unite Jew and Gentile as one in the church, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Listen to what it says in John 1, 11 through 13 of Christ. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we Gentiles, we've been brought near by the grace of God. Israel and Judah, they would be combined in captivity and be brought out and be restored as one nation. In Revelation chapter 7, God describes of sealing the servants of God, 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it shows that God has kept his word. He will keep his word. That he did not forget about those northern tribes, even though he says, you are not my people. And I'm not going to show you mercy right now. He has been merciful and continued to be gracious to them. And this is cool. In Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude praising God of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Down here in Australia, across the world, we will be gathered as one at the feet of Jesus, praising and glorifying him forever. According to the law, such acceptance that, that someone who had sinned um, and now being brought near by the blood of Jesus, that would be scandalous that you could be accepted by God when you had sinned so terribly. But by his grace, we have been brought near. Now, there's a little side note here. The Valley of Jezreel, where it says, Great is the day of Jezreel. Megiddo is in the Jezreel Valley. 
And that's the place where Armageddon will take place. This great victory that Jesus will have over his enemies in, the valley, in that valley will be one that unites all people uh, under Christ as one. So Hosea 1.7, it's been fulfilled and is also yet to be fulfilled in the day of Jezreel, where he says, Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and not save them by bow, by sword, or by battle, by horses or horsemen. They will not need to fight in that battle because God will fight for them. And God fights for us. He helps us in our difficulties, in our trials. He does all things well. So a point of application in thinking this over is to recognize and acknowledge the mercy and grace as God, God has shown each one of us, that he has been faithful to us. And if we are estranged from his mercy or grace, it is not his doing as much as ours. And to think, will I give God the control of my life that Hosea did in choosing who he would marry, in choosing the name for his children, in, in, as, as we're going to see as we read through this book, the things that God wanted and used his life in such a way, are we willing to be used like that? Like, Lord, here am I. Use me however you desire. Even when it's uncomfortable, even when people don't understand, that I would be your servant. Also giving grace to others. We have worked to earn what God gives by grace alone. And we have also withheld grace from others. We have not been compassionate at times because we felt, you know, they should know better. Maybe they should. But God gives more grace. And it's not accepting of a fault to be gracious to people and compassionate and loving towards them and to continue. Because it's one thing to give it initially, right? But when you... You feel like you're being taken advantage of. Well, they're really not taking advantage of us. It's, it's the Lord who, who knows all about it. We were the ones worthy. This is what we deserved for God to say, not my people, not loved. He could, because of our sin, because we were apart from that covenant, that God, he had no obligation to be kind to us at all, but because he is good. He has sent his own son and purchased us with his blood so we could be one in Christ and we could be together forever in that union in heaven with his spirit within us. I like Hosea 2.1. says, say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. That we would love one another. We would enjoy the unity we have in the body of Christ. That we'd put aside the divisions because of differences. God's given Israel grace, Judah grace. He's given us grace as well. May we receive in it, receive it and walk in it towards others. The Bible says that people will know we're Christians because of the love we have one for another. Interesting, isn't it? That it's not just love towards the world. God's shown his love towards the world and we should love them. But people will know we're Christians because of the love we have one for another. God's grace leads us to listen to a person who married a prostitute instead of judging them as wicked and foolish. For we're no better than harlots ourselves that God has chosen to love and join himself to forever. So it's quite challenging, isn't it? 
to think about how scandalous this appears on the surface, yet God was working. God was doing something. He was speaking, and he speaks to us today. God, God's grace is pure. It's righteous. It's as good as he is. Celebrate that. Celebrate the grace that God has shown us all. We're so undeserving of his favor. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are so good to us. You are so faithful to your people that you keep your promises. When they were unfaithful to you, you remembered them. And though you did not have mercy on them for a season, Lord, you have not forgotten your promise. And Father, when we are in the midst of a trial and we feel like we are forsaken by you, help us to return to you with our whole hearts to endure that suffering, knowing that you have allowed it for your divine sovereign purposes and that you will redeem it and you will restore us uh, in your time and in your way. Lord, I pray for those who are um, struggling with the difficulties of life, with health issues, with uncertainties. Father, thank you that we can find our hope in you and that we are complete in you, in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's challenging. Lord, search our hearts. Help us to be those who are completely surrendered before you. Cause us to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to walk in the way that pleases you. And Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you'd give us understanding of these things, and that we'd go forth rejoicing and glorifying you. In Jesus' name, amen.